Hey, Scott Jennings here, host of the Flyover Country podcast. Today we have not a panel, but a great guest named David Polianski. David was the deputy campaign manager for the Ron DeSantis for President campaign. He started the cycle working for the DeSantis Super PAC. We have a great interview with David today. I ran into him up at CNN in the green room the other day and thought, I'd love to go inside the DeSantis campaign, which obviously didn't work out, but there may be valuable lessons learned for campaign strategists about whether you can run a campaign out of a super PAC, whether you can bypass the national media the way DeSantis tried to do. We're going to get some stories from David Polianski, who joins us from Houston, Texas, today on Flower Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And thanks for listening to Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings alongside Joe Arnold. Mr. Jennings, not a panel this week, but I appreciate you still allowing your roundtable host to be a part of the Meet the Press. Don't I, I don't usually... You're not usually in these interviews. Don't make me regret it. That's all I'm. <laughs> all right, David. No, no pressure now. And uh, and as you heard, our guest this week is David Polianski, a longtime Republican strategist, part of a number of big campaigns over the years. Former chief of staff to Ted Cruz. And the reason, David, you're with us is because you're just coming off a stint as deputy campaign manager for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. You and I had occasion to run into each other. Uh, on Sunday, a couple of Sundays ago, uh, on State of the Union on CNN, and I thought we should have David in. So, welcome to the pod. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you referencing the um, long tenured Republican uh, matches my gray hair. So, thank you for that. Yeah, you've been around the block. Give our listeners uh, sort of a, a, a walk through here of the different uh, presidential and other large campaigns you've been involved in over the years. Oh boy, you know I. Um, I've been on a, a host of great campaigns in my day, um, really cut my teeth here in the city of Houston in politics, um, both in citywide races and even worked at City Hall. So um, local politics uh, is where I started and uh, I still have probably a secret uh, love with it, but uh, found myself working on great issue campaigns to my first presidential, which was Mike Huckabee uh, back uh, and I guess that was in 08. Where we had a pretty good run, um, yeah. you know, made a real run at it. And uh, as we approached South Carolina here, um, that's where the tables turned on us a bit with the very close loss to John McCain that set the stage for his nomination. And um, from there, um, you know, uh, other presidentials that I worked on, uh, Scott Walker's campaign um, obviously transitioned over to Ted Cruz's um, and even into Governor DeSantis's this go around. And uh, you know, depending on my health and well-being, uh, maybe I've got one more run in me in four years from now as well. Yeah, your uh, your uh, work for Scott Walker to me was interesting because like Governor DeSantis, who you just did, you know, at one point Walker was, you know, that that governor. You know, he was the, the darling of uh, the conservative movement, what he had been able to accomplish, the political victories he had over very entrenched and well-funded interests in Wisconsin. And of course, he, uh, you know, didn't quite make it uh, really even to the starting gate uh, in that particular race. Now, Governor DeSantis did make it to Iowa, and I want to talk about that campaign. But I was wondering if you might just reflect based on your own experience, why you think it is that governors are having a little bit 
of a difficult time in some cases making the the what they're doing at the state level translate to that national audience is it just that politics is now nationalized and state level issues don't resonate as much anymore or do you think there's something else to it um it's a great question and and i i, I don't know if there's one answer or one correct answer i think there's many um I think part of it is both of those governors were coming off of um, re-elects at the moment. So mm. they win re-election, uh, big wins, um, big margins in, in big, uh, big and in critical, in critically important states, um, and then had to immediately transition into federal issues, into a federal campaign and all that comes with it. Now, I think Governor DeSantis, having been you know part of the Freedom Caucus, part of the House before, um, probably was better versed on federal issues at that time. Um, but still, you're a governor running a state. Um, you're entrenched in those state issues. Um, compared to senators who, um, as you know, Scott, um, don't always have that same responsibility. Um, you know, they get to go out and actually talk about politics a lot more, talk about policy, uh, and not just in terms of federal policies, but just in terms of the politics of policy. And that's a lot different. And uh, when you're a U.S. senator, no matter who you are, when you walk out your office door into the hallway, the press is right there. There is no dividing line as you take that subway down to take a vote. You are in the trenches every single day. And as a governor, I think in some ways you're insulated from a lot of that. And so, uh, you know, when you get out on the trail, I think the, the governors have to kind of learn their way through uh, being exposed in those ways. So um, in, in some ways, there's a big amazing benefit to being an executive. Um, and I think voters really appreciate like that. In other ways, uh, being a senator and, and otherwise, uh, you know, being in the trenches of politics and political reporters every day uh, gives you a cadence that uh, also gives you an advantage on the trail. So I think one of the under uh, reported things about being a governor that should be focused on more by the media is that presidential campaigns are mostly built around saying what I plan to do. You know, I'm going to I'm going to do this. I have these policy views. I'm going to do whatever. But a lot of being president is reacting to the world and governors, particularly the governor of Florida, <laughs> is often reacting to emergencies, particularly weather emergencies in the case of Florida, but I, I feel like that always gets you sort of what is your reaction time? What is your reactive experience? I feel like that gets short shrift, honestly. Uh, and truthfully, in the case of Governor DeSantis, who had a hurricane during the campaign, I feel like that that story came and went, maybe because they didn't want people to see him doing what he does, which is handle emergencies down there. Do you do you feel like the hurricane that happened during the campaign and DeSantis's obvious good work on it, do, do you believe that it was intentionally minimized? Because he he obviously did a great job. Oh, I, you know, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd say that um, it was actually if you measure um, we one of the things we measured frequently was hourly was her media and in from info flow. Um, and, and over the stretch of the hurricane was actually the, the one of the few days, I think it was actually two days, um, where he was the, the biggest, uh, had the biggest info share out of any Republican, including Donald Trump, which, mm. as you guys know, is, is really challenging and, and difficult. Um, so on the one hand, there was a lot of coverage of him and the storm. Um, on the other hand, I think you're right. 
um, to see somebody um, step in the way he did and, and step into an emergency center and stay, um, you know, on the beat for almost 24 hours straight, um, you know, helping the state, um, you know, prepare for a storm, uh, making sure they were prepared upon impact and most importantly, being uh, prepared to deploy the resources needed, you know, up and down uh, the, the panhandle and a little down the elbow there uh, really uh, not just was a great um, image for politics, but more importantly, it helped save people's lives. Yeah. And um, and so in some ways, look, I, I, you always wish you'd get more coverage and more favorable coverage. But at the same time, he was doing his job and did it extremely well. And, and when you do that, sometimes you just don't get the, the, the accolades um, from the, the mainstream press or in, in this case, probably the conservative press as you'd like. But yeah, those are just the breaks. Um, the fact of the matter is when when the state needed him the most, he stepped up and delivered even in the middle of a presidential campaign. And that's that's more meaningful than the amount of hits you get on Fox News over it. Let me uh, take us back to election night, November 2022. Let's listen to Governor DeSantis that night after scoring a huge historic reelection victory in Florida. Well, thank you so much. You know, over these past four years, we've seen major challenges for the people of our state, for the citizens of the United States, and above all, for the cause of freedom. We saw freedom and our very way of life and so many other jurisdictions in this country wither on the vine. Florida held the line. We chose facts over fear. We chose education over indoctrination. We chose law and order over rioting and disorder. Florida was a refuge of sanity when the world went mad. We stood as a citadel of freedom for people across this country and indeed across the world. David, when you hear that clip and you think about that night, um, I, I'm sure you as well, and, and many of us thought this guy could go all the way. And maybe he needs to because that same night, a lot of the Trump-aligned candidates around the country were were failing. The Republicans underperformed. But then 200 days roughly passed before he launched his campaign. When you when you think back on that that night he won in Florida, and then you think about when you finally got to launching the campaign, what what goes through your mind now? Do you have have you have you had a chance to sort of reassess that decision to wait that long? Oh, you know, look, there are a lot of things you can Monday morning quarterback. Um, as, as you know, presidential campaigns are truly like marathons. Um, and going against Donald Trump is kind of a combination of a marathon and a UFC fight. So um, even if you started earlier when you, you, per, you had to perceive momentum doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have to be able to carry that momentum the length of the race. And um, going against Donald Trump is a bruising fight, and politics as a whole is um, ebbs and flows. And so, sure, you could say if he started earlier, maybe he would have tapped into something um, you know that was out there and given him an earlier advantage, but he would have had to help hold it longer, too. And so, um, 
I don't know the answer, to be honest. Um, you know, I think um, in, in hindsight, you know, would he have gone earlier? I don't know. Um, at the, you know, at the same time, the guy just came off of a reelect. He had, um, you know, a session to take care of in his home state that he wanted to accomplish a lot for the state of Florida um, and set some serious precedent for the rest of the country. He did that. Um, and he jumped in at a moment. He thought he, um, the campaign and the state were all in a situation and best prepared for it. So I don't know that it would have made a difference because at the end of the day, when Donald Trump's indictments came down, I don't know if Ron DeSantis had you know, uh, announced in November or if he waited an extra month, it would have mattered. That's really the game changing moment mm-hmm. of, of this campaign cycle. Joe Arnold, as you, David, as you are navigating campaign strategy in 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 2024 now and looking back over your career in scott i'm thinking back when for instance when you were running uh new mexico for george w bush back in 2004 this is pre-twitter this is you know pre this is the right when facebook is starting this is before barack obama really i mean in terms of the how everything began to change and then and and then trump is sort of like a nuclear bomb in the middle of all that where how do you assess how to break through how to connect how to how how do those things work and is it are we still figuring that out and and it seems to me that Donald Trump is that 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 major disruptor in the middle of this other disruption already going on yeah i mean you i mean you nailed it there is no formula to it you just look at even the history of Iowa um this was my third Iowa caucus and if you ever would have told me that the candidate who traveled to all 99 counties had an organization built out in every one of the 99 counties and every caucus site and had the support of a very popular governor and 43 state legislators and Bob Vanderplatz and Steve Dace and fill in the blank, um, you know, would have a hard time, uh, you know, uh, you know, securing second place in the state and seeing, you know, another candidate above 50, you'd never see that before. Um, the hard work, the organization is something just culturally to Iowa, um, not just caucuses, but in general in politics there that that matters and traditionally matters most. And it mattered much less this time. Um, it That wouldn't be to the benefit of anybody else other than Donald Trump. He just breaks the norm and breaks the rules. And so that applies into, uh, you know, grassroots organizing in politics to the way you try to communicate and capture your share of the earned media market. Um, uh, it just all has significantly turned uh, upside down and, and that makes it challenging. It makes it a lot of fun, but it makes him very hard to beat. I remember when Rand Paul emerged in Kentucky in 2010, and that was largely on the um, the, the the strength of Fox News. I mean, he he pretty much yeah. did an end around a lot of the local media here, including myself. He still talked to me at times, but he didn't need to. He was able to talk directly to that cohort and that community. So I just want to wonder, are there are electronic communities today more important than real communities like Iowa? Like, in other words, if, if you if you have this cohort and this group, which has more in common with each other, you don't need necessarily to be there. I mean, it's a great question. And um you know, I hate to, you know, I, 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 I think I think we're all going to have to analyze this cycle um, for a little bit here and digest what it means long term uh, with Donald Trump in the picture and, and maybe, you know, post Donald Trump. But I will tell you this, um, you know, you, you hear me talk a lot about info flow and how we measure it. 
Um, in the state of Iowa, we saw consistently over the final few weeks, um, the earned media share, it, it adjusted by market slightly, but let's say globally across the state, it was about 54% of you know, earned media consumption was for Donald Trump, about 24% for um, Ron DeSantis, and about 22% for Nikki Haley. Those numbers and sound very familiar. <laughs> yeah. They sound very familiar, don't they? Mm, interesting. And so we're, we're monitoring, you know, Nikki Haley was the biggest paid media spender by far, especially down the, overall in Iowa, she spent the most actually, but down the stretch, you know, astronomical amounts between her campaign, her super PAC, and even AFP and others. And, you know, we were, you know, we were coming in, uh, you know, with everything we had left in us and, and Trump was spending to a certain degree there as well. Um, and, and then you can measure the, the organization, which I think we outpaced everybody by far. But at the end of the day, maybe it was that info flow. Maybe it was what people were seeing, not just on Fox News, but that's why we started to hit the CNNs and the MSNBCs and, um, you know, especially local media and talk radio in trying to outflank um, where the traditional media wanted to drive the conversation and try to drive it ourselves. Um, and I think uh, that effectively gave us, in, in, you know, our political and our comms joint operation in Iowa gave us the ability to certainly outlast Nikki Haley, even though polling had her up between six and eight percent going into the final few days. Um, and she had the biggest spend. Um, so, yeah, I do believe that those mechanisms and those means um, and, and making sure you just don't stick to the ground, but you figure a way from the air and not just through paid advertising to drive your message, especially when you're going against Donald Trump. You just don't have a choice. Let me ask you about the earned media strategy. Uh, obviously, when the DeSantis campaign started, part of the, the strategy was to bypass the corporate media, the, the normal mainstream channels. And I guess the theory was is that Republicans aren't listening to them anyway and don't care what they think anyway. So let's just talk to Republicans directly or through media channels that they find credible. Obviously, over the course of time, that strategy changed. My observation of DeSantis was, especially for the last couple of months, was that he was technically the best candidate in the race. No gaffes, handled all of his mainstream appearances correctly, uh, won the debate in Des Moines. You know, all the things that he needed to do, I, you know, in, in hindsight now, it was too late. But do you look back on that now and say it's just not possible to run a presidential campaign and go around uh, the traditional media, or or was it an idea that's just ahead of its time? Well, I, you know, look, I think the governor himself has said it was a mistake. Um, you know, um, some of us came in in, in August and um, you know decided to take a different course, a different path, um, because we felt volume. Um, even on some platforms that wouldn't match, let's say, a Fox News, for instance. But there are Republicans, for instance, in Iowa and certainly New Hampshire that watch Morning Joe. Um, mm -hmm. There are Republicans in Iowa, in New Hampshire and South Carolina who watch CNN. Like they're, they're you know, and, and certainly from a local perspective. And at the end of the day, um, you know, a, a Republican primary voter or caucus goer doesn't necessarily remember if they saw Ron DeSantis as they were skimming, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, or their, you know, their local ABC or CBS affiliate, they just remember seeing and hearing him. And so we took an all in, all across the board approach. And frankly, I think by doing that, not only did it uh, give us further reach, 
but it made him a better candidate along the way as well. Because when you're not just at answering the same questions by the same interviewers about the same topics over and over again, but you're actually pressed by people that want to push you and push your limits, that's how you get better. That's how you get better in debates. That's how you get better on the stump. That's how you get better in interviews. And that's even how you get better in town hall uh, formats. And so um, that wasn't the only reason to do it, but one of the reasons to do it, um, you know, uh, that was certainly one of the bigger benefits of doing it. But at the end of the day, it is a volume game. And when you're going against Donald Trump, you don't get to pick one avenue to do it. I have to, you mentioned the word debates. I have to ask you about debates because they were <laughs> a, a train wreck on top of a train wreck for, I mean, and, and not just yeah. for the candidates, but for the viewers, for everyone, they're worthless. I mean, the, the, none of the debates with the, the cavalcade of stars there on the, on the, on the stage did anything to help anyone understand how any of those people would have been president or the voters to make a decision. It was all a matter. It's, it's, it's more of a, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm repeating what people have already criticized it. It's sort of a survivor reality show. It's like, it's like a, it's like a Roman Coliseum. Yeah. It, yeah it's, but, it's there for your amusement, but, but not necessarily your information. I, I have a question about this, which is, do you in retrospect think that format, that multi-candidate right. format has outlived its usefulness? And if you were given, I'll say yes before David does, but, but, but if you were given the keys <laughs> to redesign it, what would you think is best? What, what would best serve Republican primary voters uh, uh, different than what we do now, which I think is a debacle. I agree with Joe. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a debacle. Um, and, uh, you know, look, you go back to the, the Reagan debate um, where outside of Donald Trump, we were clearly the second place candidate in the race. And Ron DeSantis didn't get to speak for the first 18 minutes of the debate. And as you guys know, the first 30 minutes, the first 60 minutes of the debate is when most people are watching and when decisions are made as to who won. How is that possible? How is Ron DeSantis center stage not speaking a single word until the 19th minute of a presidential debate? It's absurd. Right. And so um, it's not, not only um, outdated, but incredibly frustrating. And I think if you look at, at the cycle, you look at when it was DeSantis versus Newsom or DeSantis versus Haley, you actually saw people painting very sharp contrast. You put people in positions where they had to defend their records, they had to defend their positions and talk about their visions for the future in contrast with one another. And so Roman gladiator style, one-on-one -on -one debates, that's the only way you're going to get the truth out of people and you're going to test their ability as candidates. Otherwise, they can hide. They can, you know, look, that's Nikki Haley propelled herself in first two debates by punching up on Vivek, you know, on right. the debate stage. That's like, you know, that's which, like, which me. we sincerely appreciated, by the way. We, I, and I, I assume you did as well. <laughs> I, I do too, but that's like me, you know, punching a bag of, of Charmin. Like, you know, that's right. not the true test of a candidate's medal and ability. Her medal was tested when she debated Ron DeSantis one on one, and she didn't hold up to the test. And I yeah. think people at that point started to notice, holy cow, if she can't do this, how would she ever, you know, handle the pressure of, you know, a one on one? general election presidential debate. And so the point is, those types of formats that you saw, we took advantage of, again, with Newsom, again, with Nikki Haley. And we frankly pressed Nikki Haley to do again in New Hampshire, where I can see why she wouldn't have wanted to do it, but she probably should have done it, because that's how you prove your value and your medal to voters. I wonder if, I, I, I only imagine the campaign's shared frustration uh, after the... Um... 
it was on CNN when when the governor did a, a town hall. It was right after one of the debates. And then uh, the, the panel, for the most part, Scott said, well, where has this governor been the whole time? Where has he been? I'm like, no, he has been there. And actually, I've seen him in that same context, like in the one-on-one interviews that he had done with other journalists, very uh, uh, transparent, frankly, uh, really a, certainly capable, answering questions in a very uh, thoughtful way and a very conservative and consistent way. But I think what it boils down to is people are choosing what they pay attention to and what they choose to cover. Because to me, I was like, what do you mean, where has he been? I've seen him before. You're just choosing not to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, it goes back to the, you know, we had, um, as we did with CNN, we had pushed Fox News for a debate opportunity with Nikki Haley and with Donald Trump. And um, they just never were able to push it or, or desired to push it across the finish line. And that's their prerogative. Um, I think you look at um, how the CNN town halls went off compared to the Fox News town halls. And, you know, and they were exponentially better on CNN. And so, you know, if if we as a movement really want to test our candidates and make our field get better, by the way, not just for the 2024 cycle, but for 2828 cycle and going forward, then we need to do a better job and demand that our candidates participate in these types of screening processes. Because, yes, that Ron DeSantis was always there, but sure, he did get better along the way. Um, The question is, did did candidates like Nikki Haley and others? No, actually, they regressed. And it's that kind of value that voters and donors and others see that should propel our decision making as we gear up toward actually voting. I agree with David. I I think DeSantis was an improving commodity. Haley, when the spotlight got hot, I think has been a a degrading commodity um, just in terms of overall public communication skills. But what it really came out to me was in that debate in Des Moines uh, when you got each other one-on-one and to watch her sort of glitch up over that whole, you know, DeSantisLies.com business. Uh, I, I think she hurt. I, I think she may have been tracking for a second place in Iowa, but I think that night, I think DeSantis hurt Haley on the stage. And then that combined with the strength of the organization mm-hmm. propelled you into second place, which is what made it so jarring uh, when she came out and pretended as though she had won the election. Uh, she's done that twice now, which is sort of <laughs> a surprise. I agree with Trump. I got it. Why? Why are you giving victory speeches? You keep losing elections. But I want to. I want to talk about that, and I want to also talk about uh, DeSantis and the way he was treated early on by the media. My view is, you had this unholy alliance, Trump, and never Trump, and the media and the Democrats, for one shining moment, had a moment of alignment, and it was get. Ron DeSantis. We'll talk about that when we come back on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Hey there, Flyover Country listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluegrass Media Lab, Kentucky's premier media studio. The Bluegrass Media Lab offers a wide array of services, including video production, podcasting, live shot broadcasting, web development, media training, and more. You name it, they do it. Head over to bluegrassmedialab.com today to get in touch. Now, back to more Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. And we're back on Flyover Country. Our guest is David Polianski, who joins us live from Houston, Texas today. Longtime Republican strategist, veteran of five presidential campaigns, 
and most recently was the deputy campaign manager for Ron DeSantis for president. My erstwhile partner, Joe Arnold, is in the studio as well. Erstwhile is a compliment, isn't it? No. Wait, what does it mean? <laughs> it's, it's sort of like past tense. Yeah, erstwhile <laughs> partner, Joe Arnold, is here. And uh, we're, we're talking about the uh, 2024 presidential campaign cycle and uh, specifically the DeSantis campaign. And David, I am curious about your reflections now. I, I really do believe that virtually every corner of the American public affairs sphere aligned itself together to try to destroy DeSantis. And for a few reasons. One, I think the media largely needs Trump. They need Trump. I mean, let's be honest. The guy drives eyeballs. He drives clicks. I mean, they need him. The Democrats think they need Trump because they think he's the only person Joe Biden can beat. Never Trump needs Trump because he's obviously the source of their revenue and relevance. And of course, Trump needs Trump because he's Trump. And so you had all these people who had this convergence <laughs> and, and, and they all, I don't know, they had a meeting, but they certainly had a mind meld, which is let's all work together to destroy Ron DeSantis. Did you feel that way as it was happening? Oh, sure. Um, I, I mean, obviously Trump had the incentive because we were, you know, we were opponents on the political battlefield. So you can't begrudge him or their campaign for coming after us. Um, uh, I think the media in part because of uh, their skirmishes and battles with the governor when he was in office um, and to a degree, uh, you know, maybe some of the, uh, the battles they had at the start of the campaign cycle. Um, but I think there's one part of this, which I guess you could call the never Trump or more importantly, the donor community, um, which was pretty stunning. We, we had the chance to pitch um, a, a major part of that community um, and then followed up with memos to them. And we outlined the, the realities of the race to them, which was, uh, look, there's no mathematical pathway for a Nikki Haley uh, battle against Donald Trump. The, this is just math. You could take, take out all the emotion of this you want. There was never a mathematical pathway. Um, and in fact, if you give Nikki Haley money and she uses it against Ron DeSantis, you are helping Donald Trump. And um, in fact, we told them in writing that every dollar they gave to Nikki Haley that she spent on us should also be reported as an in-kind contribution to Trump. And you know what? That's actually what turned out to happen in Iowa. The only reason Donald Trump got above 50 percent was because she spent so much money attacking us, the third place candidate in their polling, right. rather than going after the first place candidate who was 20, 30 points ahead. And so... Their effort combined to spend tens of millions of dollars to degrade Ron DeSantis and push him down, all of his vote share only peeled off and went to Trump, which pushed him over to 50 percent, gave him the momentum going into New Hampshire and set him loose on a pathway he was never going to be stopped at that moment. And so it was really the donor community that made those decisions um, that ultimately helped decide it. Because look, again, as I said, I think the indictments were probably the end of this race. But if you had one chance and one shot at this, it would have been a united faction behind a candidate, maybe even if they didn't agree with all of his policies, that mathematically could compete with Donald Trump on the battlefield. And, and that was only DeSantis. And I, I, I think your observation about her paid media also aligns with what she did in the debate against DeSantis. She shows up with a website, DeSantis Lies, but I didn't hear her talking about any websites about Donald Trump lying. 
And so it 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 was sort of curious to me that she didn't view Trump as the ultimate opponent. And uh, so ultimately saying that she was she was Vivek. I mean, in other words, she was a Trump. Well, she know, she obviously had things to say. she had things to say about Trump, but but as a strategic matter, what he's saying is is true, and that is not not trying to run against Trump, but running against DeSantis pushed people to Trump. Right. And so, you know, if you're Haley, did it do her any good to finish third? And then, uh, uh, you know, I mean, did did that help her? It, I I would argue she she hurt herself, and it would have been better had. I think probably for for both DeSantis and Haley, had he come in under fifty, and then maybe everybody keeps the ball bouncing. But the way it all turned out, sort of took the air out of both balloons. I mean, I don't know what you think, that, David, but but getting to that, that number he got to was pretty good number. That's right. I mean, the the the, the pro Haley anti DeSantis effort, which was one and the same, won Donald Trump the nomination on the night of Iowa. I mean, they handed him the victory. Now he they worked hard. You know, Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and he deserved the win. I'm not, you know, trying to degrade that, but they handed him the 50% plus victory that we warned that donor community about. You give him that win, he is off to the races, and he will not be stoppable. And I'll I'll give you one other interesting factoid because I actually was sitting on the call. I was in Iowa when the governor did it. It was with the head of AFP. Americans for Prosperity, part of the Coke Network. And they were trying to decide what they were going to do in the race. It was, I don't remember what month it was, but it was, it was, I think it was cold in Iowa. So probably after Halloween mm. and the governor's on with their CEO or their executive director, whoever, I can't remember who all was on the call. And, you know, he gives a pitch and spiel about how our campaign's doing and, 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 you know, what we're up to and why we feel we're the best equipped to, to challenge Trump for the nomination but at the end, he paused and he said, but look, I'm not asking you for your support. In fact, I don't want you to support us. I don't want you to support Nikki Haley either. What I'm asking you to do is spend your resources and go challenge Donald Trump and let both of us have our shots at him. That's the only way this can work. And so, um, you know, what groups and donors like that did, instead of taking, you know, the heat to Donald Trump and trying to find a way just to degrade his ballot share and favorability just a bit to give us all a shot. Instead, they chose an avenue that not only um, maybe it made them feel good, but it ultimately handed them the outcome very quickly and early that they didn't want. This is exactly what I wanted to ask you about, David, because this is the area that most of us don't have any access to is understanding the donor class, understanding the what influence they do or wish they held or, or would, would, would wield. Um, and then beyond that, how those conversations go, the I for the longest time, I, I had this belief. I don't know where it came from. That's that's ultimately Donald Trump would be pushed out. I don't know why I thought that. I just I, I was as unrealistic. Scott tried to disabuse me of this notion many, many times. <laughs> um, yeah. But but the fact I guess because they don't operate as one unit. Right. I mean, everyone has their own dollars, whatever else. But how does that you, you, you've already explained as far as that one phone call, which I find fascinating, but any other kind of insights you can give us as far as how that whole relationship works and, and how these things develop? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I think a lot of it probably had developed. Um, certainly a lot of it played out before I got there, meaning I don't have full visibility on, on all those conversations and a lot of those meetings. So I can 
speak to August and beyond um, when, when James and myself came over. And, uh, you know, we went in very aggressively, very early to pitch people on our vision, which was, look, there was an opportunity for us with our organization, with the endorsements we had or were getting, with our um, you know, with our philosophical and political alignment, everything lined up for us to get, make a real run at Donald Trump in Iowa. Um, everything lined up for Nikki Haley, given the makeup of you know the participation by crossover Democrats and independents in New Hampshire, for her to make a run at him in New Hampshire. And so the logic here with the donor community was help you know help suppress Trump in both of those states. We'll take our run at him in Iowa. And she'll take her run at him in New Hampshire, and we'll all meet in Nevada and South Carolina and beyond and, 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 and see how this goes. And for whatever reason, whether it was in these in-person pitches or, you know, with our memo that laid this out, you know, as succinctly as we could to the donor class, um, when they, again, invested in Haley, she used that money to swivel into Iowa to try to kill our candidacy instead of trying to play the game of outlasting Donald Trump. And so when you ask how this works, um, it, it, it's kind of unclear, to be honest, because I think we've made a pretty logical argument and, and frankly, not a greedy one. I've said all along, I think Nikki Haley's moves, the moves that her team and, and campaign, but more in her super PAC made were greedy. By spending as much as they did against us in Iowa, they took their eye off the ball and sheared votes over to Trump. They gave him the win that propelled him to the nomination. I think that's greed. Um, Ron DeSantis wasn't greedy. He said, don't give me your money necessarily. Spend it to give us a chance to defeat you know, the incumbent president, which is what Donald Trump is. And um, I think donors, uh, for a whole host of reasons, uh, in some cases lost confidence in the campaign, probably, you know, in the summer months, um, in some ways, um, felt more philosophically aligned with somebody like Nikki Haley. Um, and, and in some ways, maybe uh, even gave up on the race and just wanted to give where they felt good rather than where they felt they could actually have a shot at it. But I don't know. And I think I think that happens when a lot of donors um, and a lot of these organizations are run by people and, and Scott, we experience this all the time. It's not to belittle anyone, but presidential politics, you have to have the heartbeat of people on the ground. You have to know what an Iowan who's going to brave minus 21 degree, you know, you know, air temperatures wants to hear and how they feel and, and what drives them to go out and caucus for somebody you don't get that from sitting in, you know, in Washington, D.C. You don't get that from experience on the Hill. You get that from, you know, putting a knife in your teeth and going out and grinding every day on the ground in states like Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina. And I think a lot of the decisions that are made by the donor community and the organizations that they fund are driven by people that don't understand our base. Again, just because you're not culturally or philosophically aligned with every element of our base doesn't mean you have to go out and under, truly understand them to understand how to influence elections. And I think that's the big disconnect we've got as a party. I uh, was listening to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, yesterday, and Acestead had an interview with a donor uh, who is for Haley. And I listened to you got to listen to this. It's this long interview, and it, it could not be more out of touch with the reality of this primary and what's going on 
This guy had even written a song about Nikki Haley and sang it on the thing. And I just thought, what? What are we? It must be nice to have all this money and make songs. And tr- I mean, he believed that she's going to be the next president. And yet that's not going to be the case. The other voice on this podcast today, other than Joe Arnold, is David Polianski, who is deputy campaign manager for Ron DeSantis for president. Let me um, ask you, David, uh, The in addition to the the unorthodox media strategy the campaign started out with. The other big test here that was run was, can you run a presidential campaign largely out of a super PAC? You had a campaign, and for the and for those who don't know, you can have a campaign committee. You have super PACs, of course, but they cannot coordinate on legally legally paid expenditures. They can do some things together, and and candidates can show up at events, and and there's some things that can can look like they dovetail, but but legally they cannot coordinate paid activities. But a lot of money went into the Never Back Down group. I guess most of the money that was spent on behalf of DeSantis was actually spent on the outside. Having now experienced this, and you were always part of the campaign. No, you started with the Super PAC, then you went to the campaign. So you were in both you you were in both sides of it. But now having finished with the campaign, looking back on this now. Is it possible to run a successful presidential campaign where such a huge chunk of the conversation that's occurring around your campaign is out of your control? Um, Yes and no. I think – look, I think, again, if Donald Trump hadn't been indicted and the the winds had changed, you know, we might be having a a different conversation about the makeup – you know, of a, of a super PAC in a campaign, um, you know, combination. I, I don't know. Um, but it, I will say there were also, you are right. There were a lot of difficulties with it. For instance, if the candidates on a bus for a super PAC um, and you've got a debate in three days, you can't do debate prep with them on the bus, right? Mm. You, you've handed him off um, and you have to wait until he's off and at a hotel somewhere, or you've got him in your possession and clutches. And that's just a small, um, it's a small example. Um, but I think it's an important one, which is, um, you know, the, there are a lot of good things that came out of that combination, the field program in particular, um, which, um, when I started at never back down, I was proud to be a part of, um, helping that group, uh, organize and lead. I think it was, um, Having done this a lot uh, more than I, I care to admit, um, it was one of the best field programs, you know, historically, mm. certainly in Iowa history. Um, and it was holding up to be that that way in South Carolina as well, um, with a pretty good footprint, even in New Hampshire, by the way, where we had more legislative endorsements, um, even at the end than Donald Trump had, um, uh, unbelievably. And so. Uh, there was a lot of good from a field program standpoint that comes from it, uh, but it does get choppy. It does get complicated, you know, when you get on to higher level messaging and, uh, you know, um, some of those fronts. And so I, I think I learned a lot of good that can come from that division. Uh, but I think there are a lot of things that probably uh, need to be revisited and changed too. You can't, I don't think you can farm out as much um, as you probably saw farmed out in this instance. I liked your saying earlier, the Monday morning quarterbacking, though, David, because it seems to me that all of this is is worthy of debate and discussion and, and analysis. 
but none of it really matters if Donald Trump is part of the conversation. I <laughs> think he just changes yeah. everything, right? Did you? But yeah. let me let me let me piggyback that because I think you make a great point, and and you'll know. Did you find that the people who wanted to vote for Donald Trump and who ultimately did, did you find that they were ever persuadable? I mean, was there ever a moment where most of his voters were truly willing to say, I will consider what you've told me and could be persuaded? Or do you, looking back on it now, do you believe that his his core group is basically decided and unpersuadable, even if they told a pollster, well, sure, I'll listen, but were they really ever persuadable? I'm dubious. I'm dubious as well. I will tell you in the fall, there was a point in Iowa where Trump was about 41, 42. We were about 21 or 22. So 20 point margin and Haley was down around 13. And that was right before the Haley, you know, donor infusion and they changed their spending. And it just the the whole race started to to pivot and change. Um, You know, what I saw more of was um, and I even saw saw this on caucus night. A a few of us were with the governor and he went to speak at a couple of caucus sites on the eastern part of the state. It got rousing cheers, um, standing ovations. A lot of people came up to him who were voting for Trump or caucusing for Trump and said, I love you, man. I just got to go with Donald Trump. The election was stolen or he's got more fight in him or, you know, he was just my guy, but I'll see you in 28. Um, there yeah. was a lot of that. And so, you know, especially in the night when only 110,000 people showed up and a majority of them were Trump people. Um, so I, I tend to agree with you. I think there was a lot of this division. We always saw the, the three universes and their percentages start shifted, you know, considerably throughout. But at at one point it was a third and third and third. It was always Trump. It was consider Trump and others. And then it was never consider Trump um, or not consider him anymore. And so Nikki found her way into that like left-hand lane. Trump obviously, you know, consumed the right-hand lane and the middle lane was where we had the most success, which is, Hey, I like Trump. I, I voted for him. I consider him still again, but I would consider you or others. That was our kind of bread and butter. And that lane started to close. And, you know, especially as Haley hit us, she squeezed us out of there. And more of those people ended up going into the I stand with Trump camp again. And so um, I think there was a, a point when it could have been narrower and closer. I don't know if there was ever a point where enough of the electorate was going to, especially post indictments, you know, turn away from Donald Trump. I think that was I think that was probably settled um, very early in the summer. That's the voice of David Polianski, who was deputy campaign manager for Ron DeSantis for president. When we come back on Flyover Country, we are going to get a few predictions from David. Number one, what is Ron DeSantis's future? Number two, what's going to happen in the South Carolina primary that's coming up uh, in a few days? And number three, we'll look ahead to the fall and get David's thoughts on the matchup the predicted matchup of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. When will we come back on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings? Thanks for hanging out with us on Flyover Country. Scott here along with Joe Arnold. Hello. And and David Polianski. <laughs> Joseph. Hello. I, I feel like every one of our I feel like every one of our interactions today has been so strange. Maybe it's every day. He called me erstwhile. <laughs> You're right. Speaking of erstwhile, let's go to David Polianski of the, the Sanders campaign. No offense. 
So let's talk about uh, looking ahead here, David, if we could here. A little little handicapping of, first of all, uh, you know, coming ahead to South Carolina here, if it even matters. Uh, but how do you see this all unfolding? And, and how long, I guess, does Nikki Haley stay in the race? Uh, well, I mean, um, I, I don't know what their thinking is. Um, I don't think she's going to have much success in her home state. As we all know, um, home state losses in presidential politics are um, – if uh, if you weren't dead already, you are then. Um, and, uh, you know, I just look back, even Ted Cruz held court against Donald Trump in 2016 in his home state. We won it by 17 percent here. And that gave you the chance to go on. If we had lost it, we would have had to drop out of the race. That's those are just the rules. Um, so um, I think she will lose by a healthy margin in her home state. Um, will she stay in? seems like donors are still uh, not only giving her money, but making her songs. So maybe, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe they encourage her to stay on longer, but I would not be optimistic for um, her well-being in any stay on Super Tuesday. So you, you predict a loss in South Carolina, PBD future after that. And then beyond that for Haley, I mean, what what is her future? I mean, she's 51 years old. She's I mean, it, it strikes me that the continuation of this beyond the, the the shelf life here has been damaging for most Republicans, even at is, as it has made her a bit of a darling of the uh, of the of the true never Trump Republicans, which uh, some are still in the party, but a lot have fled the party. And, and maybe, maybe that's her plan is to kind of run that run that wing of American politics. I don't know. I I think that's a tough go. You know, um, getting out, you're at your – there are two things really important in presidential politics, especially when you don't win. It's your entrance and your exit. And, um, you know, with Cruz, he made a decision, um, stayed in until about May 3rd, I think, um, in Indiana, and we lost the state by, I don't know, 15 or 17 percent. You know, given, given the fatigue of the electorate and what we were up against, um, you know, 15 point – loss was still pretty significant and he felt that ended his his pathway you know at that point um imagine losing by more than that in your home state and still going on i think uh i think you um really start to severely damage your brand and the, frankly the brand of of not just your own candidacy but your own vision and ideas so um it can be very deadly uh, the more losses you rack up without a single win makes it uh your long-term viability and future put in doubt. And if I were advising Nikki Haley, I would have been out already. And you believe coming out of this, Ron DeSantis is the front runner for 2028, a candidate for 2028 or too early to, uh, too early to tell. <laughs> uh, well, it, it is look the diff, the, the great difference between um, Republicans and Democrats right now is our bench. Um, Democrats have no bench. They have nowhere to turn. And by the way, you saw the best that they had to offer go up against Ron DeSantis in a one-on debate and get clobbered yeah. um, and Gavin Newsom. So um, so I think they are having to really rethink what their bench looks like. But you look at our, our bench and it's pretty strong. Um, uh, do I think Ron DeSantis will run? I, I don't know. I think he will, he will have more time in a great state of Florida to govern and continue to lead. We've seen him do that. The day since the day after he dropped out, he's been back in the state governing and leading um, and leading not just on state issues, but driving federal issues. So do I think he'll be back? I sure do. Um, I, you know, I think my former boss will probably be back in Ted Cruz as well. And I think you'll see others. You've got 
you know, governors like Yunkin and, um, you know, and we've got a, just a deep, deep, deep bench. And um, I think it'll be exciting for our party. Um, and look, whoever Donald Trump names as his vice presidential nominee or his pick um, will be, a, you know, a, a pretty strong leader in the clubhouse, too. And so I think there's um, I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of excitement. But I think Ron DeSantis, by fighting the battle he did in Iowa, um, getting second place there was key um, and and making the decision on the time that he did uh, gave him the opportunity to set himself up very nicely for 28. Given your knowledge of the electorate, David, and Scott mentioned before, there's there's a, there's different. By the way, there's different divisions of the Never Trumpers. I think there, there's there's folks who are there's there's the grifting class, and then there's the people who are just of good conscience that they can't do it. The question is, but there's there's, there's I think there's more of a softness of the people of good conscience. I think there's people who say, well, if you have to choose between a Republican and a Democrat, I, I still might be uh, uh, swayable. So what's your what is your take on that as far as what coalescing is possible for the fall election? I mean, it's Joe Biden, it's Joe Biden, it's Joe Biden. I mean, the White House is listless. They um, and when they speak, it's not coherent. When it is somewhat coherent, it is wrong. I mean, they're driving the, the country into the ground. And I think most Americans feel that way. And so. I, I, you know, when Democrats want to make this race in this election mostly about Donald Trump, what they're really having to do, though, is clean up their own messes. And it is becoming about Joe Biden. When this race becomes about Joe Biden, I'm not sure that they can win it. Um, I don't think independents, uh, you know, like the policies that Joe Biden is driving. I don't think they like, you know, the, the cost of groceries still. I think they feel the inflationary pressures. I think they see and, and know, even if they don't live on the Texas border, they know and feel the the massive flow of illegals coming across our border, and it scares them. They see the crime rate go up. The country is teetering in a way that, frankly, reminds me of my earliest political moment. Now I will age myself, which mm-hmm. was as a kid watching you know, um, Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter. And I remember as a kid, I didn't understand politics, but I understood and remember sitting in gas lines with the car turned off in Miami, Florida, with no air conditioning, waiting in line for gas. I remember a boat lift, you know, that that invaded my city and turned it into a massive drug swell and crime everywhere. And every day that changed my life and the way I looked at at, at my community and ultimately my my country. And I, I this feels reminiscent to that. And it feels like the country's listless and it's lacking leadership. And maybe people don't personally like Donald Trump. Maybe they don't like, you know, things related to lawsuits and, you know, both the civil and maybe the criminal side. But they sure as heck don't like what they're seeing from this administration. And I think they're scared. They're scared about immigration. They're scared about their economic well-being, their ability to put, you know, groceries in their house and fuel in their car to take their kids to school. And I think they're scared about crime. I think they're scared about all of it. And at the end of the day, you're going to make the the choice in November that's best for you and your family. And I don't think this administration has come close to making the case for themselves. So as you call it today, you think Donald Trump will defeat Joe Biden in the November election? Oh, um, You know, it would it would be like calling the Republican primary in January of this year of this year uh, or last year. Um, 
a lot is going to happen, and it's a marathon. If the election were held today, you're damn straight he would. And let me ask you this. If Donald Trump is convicted of a crime before the election, do you think that will make it impossible for him to defeat Biden? No. And it depends which case. David Polianski, you've been a great guest. Thanks for joining us on Flyover Country. David, if people want to find you out in the world, what's your Twitter? Your ex, sorry. That's a good, at David Polyansky, at D-A-V-I-D-P-O-L-Y-A-N-S-K-Y. Is that the best way to reach you out there? What are you? By the way, what are you going to do now? You've been on this campaign. You're a lawyer. You live in Houston. So what, what's next for you? Oh, man, I'm, I think I'm going to go back to uh, my secret love, which is um, – I, I do love campaigns, and I will continue. Um, this has rejuvenated me to want to stay engaged in the political process. But I also love public affairs and helping um, clients figure out their way to influence, you know, regulatory and legislative and executive outcomes. And uh, you know, politics sometimes has you know bumper lanes, right, um, uh, in a bowling alley. Public affairs doesn't, and so I really enjoy building those campaigns. He's going to be at Minute Maid Park just banging some trash cans. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're talking to two Cardinals fans over here, FYI. (laughs) David, thank you. Fair enough. Thank you, guys. Thanks, David, and you're listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.